my role model and mentor in 93, and I knew I had the opportunity to win those 93 worlds, but I messed up, and a little thing in my head just didn't quite click. I worked it out, there was something that I was still holding Bruce in, in the light of a mentor and role model and friend and an Olympic medalist, but it was like, no, I was creating a new Aaron McIntosh, and this is the way that I was going to do it. The open letter to World Sailing or the Council of World Sailing was pretty damning of the class and where the sport was at, but it got the councillors to actually stand up and listen to what Dorian had to say. Yeah, we've made a change and a change for the good. We have a, a great driving force here in New Zealand to put New Zealand back on the world windsurfing map. And I still work for the Dutch sailing team, but that's my day job. And this Windfoil New Zealand is my passion at the moment to get New Zealand back on the map. Pardon the cliche, make windsurfing great again. Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and this week's podcast is episode 10, so that's something to celebrate. It's been a fun journey over these last 10 weeks, and we hope you've enjoyed tuning in. Today, we talk to Aaron McIntosh, who in the 1990s won three windsurfing world titles and went on to win bronze at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. For the last decade, he's been the windsurfing coach with the Dutch national team and achieved incredible success, delivering multiple world and Olympic titles. More latterly, Aaron has been an advocate for windfoiling, pushing for the class to replace the RSX on the Olympic program, which was confirmed late last year for the 2024 Paris Olympics. We talked to Aaron about his journey to the top as an athlete, his relationship with Bruce Kendall and his Olympic experiences, and then his reinvention as a top coach. We also delve into why someone who coached the world's top two RSX windsurfers would push so vigorously to see that class dropped in favour of windfoiling and also what he thinks the change could mean to the New Zealand windsurfing scene, which was once at the top of the world, but has been dormant for the best part of the last decade. Unfortunately, the audio on my part of the interview isn't the best, and I sound like I'm in a cave. Fortunately, Aaron's audio is pretty good, and he's the main reason you've all tuned in today anyway. I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to the show, Aaron. Uh, there's obviously quite a lot to talk about there, but um, firstly, do you remember what your reaction was when you heard windfoiling would be included on the program for the Paris Olympics? Yeah, morning, Michael. Um, yeah, certainly a, a pretty exciting day um, for the future of the sport and um, and rebirth of, of windsurfing in New Zealand. Yeah, pretty pumped, pretty excited. You know, I was sitting online um, in my car, actually, um, driving home and listening to the World Sailing Conference and the voting procedure. And um, yeah, it was a unanimous decision um, with still a few countries that weren't sort of so convinced. But yeah, pretty special, very special to be able to change the future of the sport. Why then, why were you convinced it needed to happen? Well, what we're doing is we're, the RSX class has been a great board for the Olympics. It's, it's brutally physical. Um, the challenges of it are, you know, are huge just to get this thing around the course and in the meantime we have a massive dropout of these youth sailors 
there was no growth. The class was really stagnant. And although the techno and the RSX youth class was there, there was no growth. And unfortunately, the Olympic class was sort of slowly dying. And this sort of happens. Um, the whole windfoiling project injected a, a new lease of life to the sport of windsurfing and the Olympics as well. And I think we just saw it a lot earlier than anyone else. But didn't you have a lot to lose, given you coached the world's top two windsurfers in the RSX class? Yeah, we, we, you know, you, you can say that and you look at it like that. And, and, you know, yes, we do have a lot to lose. But the reality was that we were all behind the change. We knew it needed a change and for the greater good of the sport. And I suppose that was the, the bottom line of, of why we were pushing it. And the Dutch Sailing Federation was fully behind it as well. We need a future and we need growth as well. I look at it in a, in a, in a different light as well. I say, well, it's just another board. It's just another piece of equipment. And if we're good at, as good as we are, we'll just transfer those skills across and, and, and hopefully perform as well as we have in the RSX and the foiling glass. So no fear in that department. I suppose that's a little bit of the culture that I instill to my guys that I'm working with and um, the vision and, and the attention to detail and campaigning that we have, you know, there's a little bit more to just racing the equipment. It's, you know, it's the complete package of understanding the yacht race and the campaign as well, which I suppose we um, we do pretty damn well. Yeah, I'd like to explore that a, a little bit um, more later, but just in terms of the, the windfoiling change, you, you were sort of one of the early advocates. So how did you go about getting support to make that change? Well, the first thing we we did is we, we realised that we could foil in, in very light winds. And so we had to deliver a package to World Sailing that could sail between 5 and 35 knots and get around the race course. Um, easier said than done. But so we got into the sport and we understood the variables that we were playing with. We looked at the equipment um, and was it one sail, two sail, what size foils we were going to use. And we approached Starboard. Um, windsurfing at the time because they had a, a very good set of equipment that was working very well and performing well on on the world stage so they were our first point of call and they've also trialed or prepared uh, equipment for the olympic trials especially when the rsx was selected in 2005 so they were already at, at ready to do something they were excited about the project and really believed that with us on board that we could do something simple. So first partner, the equipment, the equipment partner, and we worked on the equipment. From there, we had to educate the people that windfoiling was new, it was easy, and it had Olympic potential. And it took a while, you know, there was a lot of lot of negative comments about it is because I think people are just afraid of change. And that's something that we weren't afraid of was change. We felt it was needed. And that's 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 a normal reaction. Um, stick to what you know, and change is a, a scary thing for a lot of people. Did it ever get political or personal? Oh, you know, I wouldn't say it was a, a real political thing. You did feel sorry for some of the people that were going to that were really fighting it. Um, you know, the RSX class or Neil Pride. There's a lot of good people working in that class. Um, we were going to uproot that system and, and change to something new. Um, Neil Pride and the people that they employ to to build the equipment. Obviously, there's you know there's going to be something less to build as well. Um, 
So, yeah, you, you think about that, but the reality is, is we need to shape the future. And we pushed on in a pretty relentless style um, to make sure we got what we wanted. So I suppose that's a little bit of an attitude of the people that we are and the people that we surrounded ourselves with um, in pushing forward this project. I guess you may not have been able to predict where you would have ended up uh, when you got into the sport. And uh, just it's probably a worthwhile exercise just to sort of remind people of your background in the sport because you've been a leading name in windsurfing for the best part of um, 30 years. Um, so just, you know, let's, let's head right back almost to the start. But how did you get into windsurfing and at what age? Well, I'd always come from a sailing family, so we cruised the Pacific Islands when I was six and again when I was eight years old. I got involved in dinghy racing and, and P-class uh, when I was 12 years old. Um, I spent as much time as I could sailing, loved sailing, sailing dinghies, anything sailing. My friends were windsurfing and um, we'd followed the Kendalls as well, so I was attracted to the windsurfing and, and I'd grab my friend's gear down at the beach, I think when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And finally, I decided to buy my own equipment. Um, that was all my paper run money that I'd saved over about six years. Um, we managed to find the right gear, which was a one design class in New Zealand, which is the Blake Spirit, a New Zealand made and manufactured board. Uh, that was 1987. And I just got into it. But I was still sailing. I was still sailing myself. I was um, winter training in the Starling. I'd got my own driver's license at that stage. So, um, my dad didn't really know, but I wasn't going to the Starling coaching during the winter. I was actually going windsurfing with my friends. Um, during the school holidays, I, I really looked seriously at the youth class and what I was going to do there. I teamed up with a, a good friend of mine, Tony Ashcroft, who I'd sailed P-class with, and we sailed the 470, thinking that we we're going to go down that route. Um, this is for the youth trials in, in late 87. And... I competed in the first windsurfing, my first windsurfing championship was um, the New Zealand Fun Board Nationals. And I won a sale for most promising competitors. So that actually allowed me to have the equipment to compete in the youth trials end of 1987. And, and we had those trials down in Tauranga and I won them and uh, beat all my friends that had got me into the class, which had you know, actually kind of pissed them off a little bit. It was this young guy who'd come from sailing. We taught him how to windsurf, and he came along and beat us at our own game. And that really set the ball rolling. Um, I was 15, and I went to the Youth Worlds in Australia, and that was 19, early 1988. And, you know, the rest is sort of history. I just kept on moving through the class itself. Um, I didn't win the youth trials again for another two years. Uh, we had a very strong youth class in New Zealand, uh, Terry Vernon, um, went to the Youth Worlds and you know, didn't didn't feature, but he performed well. And then in my last year, I finally qualified for the Youth Worlds again in 1990 and, and went on to finish third. So, you know, that was my youth period. And, and, you know, I was young, I was focused, I was addicted to sport and just loved the game. Um, you know, if you ever wanted to find me, you'd find me, you know, parked up at Bucklands Beach and, and out on the harbour um, and for long hours. Um from the youth world, so it was a case of what did I what did I want to do next? And obviously, I'd had the Kendall sort of um, winning uh, Olympic medals and world championships, and uh, the Kendalls were a family friends uh, when we travelled to Fiji on our parents' keelboats. So the Olympics just you know lit up my life, and you know being a pretty single minded and focused sort of person, it was a a pretty um, 
pretty strong attack at trying to uh, get to the top of of New Zealand's open scene, and obviously Bruce had won the gold medal in '88. I had my um, I had my work cut out, that's for sure. Well, you, yeah, you you finished third at that 1990 Youth Sailing World Champs, and you immediately said you'd challenge Bruce for the the New Zealand spot at the '92 Olympics. I guess what made you so confident, or or were you as confident as your words suggested? Well. I think um, it's funny you say that because you tell people what you're going to do and people sort of scoff at it and um, and say, yeah, right, you know, he's the Olympic champion. How are you going to beat him? But I looked at it in a different light. I said, well, he just lives down at Buckland's Beach. He's, he sails in the same area that I do, not all of the time because he's competing overseas, but that was the standard. That was the level. It was on my doorstep. So if I was ever going to get to that standard it was easy because i could see it and i could touch it and the guy was racing with us in new zealand so um i'm pretty i suppose i'm pretty famous for setting pretty lofty goals and uh, and running as hard as i possibly can at, to achieve it um i think that's just the nature of who i am you know just give it everything you can and you know the goal the goal or the, or the the project is to me as you you put the you know the peg on the wall or the stab on the wall as high as you possibly can, and that's the goal. So that sets the path and the work ethic to to achieve that, and that's where the real work comes comes about. You know, it's not just doing the hours; it's doing the smart hours, understanding and growing as yourself. And um, so that you know, the higher the goal, um, the more work that's been that needs to be done. And you know, I love the game. It's as simple as that. How close did you get in that campaign for the 92 games? Well, um, yeah, it came down to whoever beat who in the last race. Um, I was a northeasterly at Murray's Bay. I was a 20-year-old, and he was the Olympic champion. And um, Bruce beat me by three seconds. And that was it. Bruce got to go to the Olympic Games in Barcelona, and I got to you know, think about how close I'd come. So I think I'd really stirred the stirred the pot of what was what was possible um got very close to achieving my goal um i suppose a little disappointed you know of course i was you know there's a few tears so close but yet so far um but from there bruce took me on board under his wing and took me to europe in 92 as a training partner for the barcelona olympics so i still had a lot to learn on the on the international stage but i you know i suppose Know, scared Bruce enough and, and pushed him as, as close as you'd ever want to be pushed to uh, to qualify in the Olympics. Um, yeah, a little chuckle about it. You know, look back and say, well, you know, a 20-year-old rookie taking on the Olympic champion um, and coming so close um, certainly put all the doubters to, uh, to rest. I guess those doubters probably uh, would number even smaller the following year because uh, you won the 93 world title and then no sorry you were third at the 93 world championships and then backed it up with gold in 94 so so what do you remember i guess about that period and what do you remember about the 94 title um and and announcing yourself i guess on the world stage um what i, I got is i went to i went to europe as a training partner in, in 92 and i worked really hard during the olympic games and and during that period i really forged a strong working relationship with bruce and barbara as well 
And it's the same work ethic, same classic Kiwi, get in and grind and do the work, get to the venue, learn the venue, um, save as much money as you can and just be smart. And so it's all very, very you know, simple um, principle of it just getting the work done. But it was the team environment that, that was created and the work ethic together. And at that stage, Bruce and I weren't competing. I was just working for Bruce. So in 92, I was learning a lot about the, the international scene. I won a lot of practice races leading up to the Olympic Games in 92, but no competition. 92 was also quite interesting. And sorry, I'm just stepping back a little bit because they changed the Olympic class from the Lechner to the Mistral class. And I got myself to Europe in 92, 20-year-old kid. I was going to stay there. I was going to race. I was going to do everything I possibly could. After my sort of work that I'd done as, as a training partner before Barcelona, I went to the UK, I worked, I trained, I did all the local regattas in the UK and then saved enough money to do the Mistral World. So the Mistral class is the new Olympic class and I went there and won the course racing and the long distance and I messed up the slalom. So I finished second overall. So I really stepped up into the international level that year and that was the work that I did with Bruce and Barbara. 90, moving on to 93, Bruce and I worked again and we travelled together and trained really hard on the Mistral class, now the Olympic class. And it was that same team and that same work ethic of sharing everything and working together. Um, and I'm going to correct you, uh, Bruce was first in 93 and I was second. And then we rolled out the same program in 94, but I was first and Bruce was second. And it was interesting, you know, Bruce was still my role model and mentor in 93. And I knew I had the opportunity to win those 93 worlds, but I messed up and a little thing in my head just didn't quite click until after the event and made me quite angry. But post those those world championships in 93, you know, I got, I worked it out. There was something that I was still holding Bruce in, in the light of a mentor and a role model and friend and an Olympic medalist. But I was like, no, I was creating a new Aaron McIntosh and, this is the way that I was going to do it. Similar style, working together, but the reality was that Bruce didn't beat me in a competition after 93, um, and I went on to sort of establish myself as an athlete and come out of the shadow of Bruce um, during that period. So, yes, Bruce carried on towards the, Oli the Olympic trials in 96, and we were one and two in the world two years in a row, and third and fourth in 95. So very, very dominant in the sport during that period. Um, and then we had to beat you know, each other for the Olympic trials to go to, to Atlanta. So that was the real ding-dong battle, and that was really the sort of, you know, I suppose the the championship that, that really defined my path further and, and to the point that it put Bruce into retirement. Um, but that's just me, driven, hard worker, and love a good team project. So you clearly worked really closely with Bruce, but did the relationship change at all? when you became sort of the number one, you were beating him on a consistent basis? Well, yeah. Well, the relationship didn't change, but every now and again you feel a sense of frustration um, from the other person. Um, you, know, you know, in the training, you know, we'd be at loggerheads the whole time working hard and pushing each other hard. And, and Bruce probably won just as many practice races as I did. But what it got to a stage is I learned how to compete on an international level. So that was really my big – I was good on a national level, but I really had to step up and establish myself on an international level. And during that period, 
Um, I was a little bigger. I was a little bit stronger than Bruce, a little bit heavier, and could dominate him on certain points of sail, especially downwind. Um, Bruce was very good in light airs, very strong at pumping, um, and still had a bag of tricks that could beat you know, most people. But I'd learned all Bruce's tricks because I'd sp- probably spent so much time sailing with him. So it's better the enemy you know than the enemy you don't. And, and I suppose that's the beauty. We pushed each other to the top of the world. The 95 America's Cup happened, and I read somewhere that you thought more sponsorship might be money um, might be more forthcoming for athletes like you after Team New Zealand won, but that didn't eventuate, and you and Barbara and Bruce, I think, even held an auction, selling off sort of some of their Olympic memorabilia and team T-shirts to help finance the build-up for those Atlanta Olympics. So just talk to me about how hard was it to survive as an athlete, an elite athlete in those days? Well, it was just tough, but we come from a pretty tough background, you know. We're Kiwis and we're fighters, and, and when we put our sort of, you know, put our name to something and, and we give it our everything and we believe it, we just find a way. And so there's an attitude. You never see problems. You just see opportunities and you see solutions. And, yeah, we had an auction. Um, we raised all, you know, sold some money. I had a few, a couple of watches I'd won, and Barbara had some gear and Bruce had some gear. And we threw it all on the table and silent auction and open auction. We're selling T-shirts and bits and pieces on the way. Um, Yacht in New Zealand supported us as much as we could, as they could during the period. And I had good sponsors as well. But, you know, the cost of campaigning is, has always been expensive. And the living costs and, and not having an income um, to support it, you've got to get creative. And, yeah, we came up with all sorts of ideas. And some of them didn't fly. And a lot of them sort of allowed us to to carry on competing at the level that we needed to. Would you have found a way, you know, without uh, the Kendalls, because they were such big names in the game, both New Zealand and internationally, but you talked about your drive. Would you have still achieved what you did without those two? Um, I would have done exactly the same. Um, I don't know if it would have been as successful, for sure not. Um, I suppose it's what it is, is when, you get like-minded people work together and share a common goal. And yes, you're individuals competing against each other, but we raised the bar and we created New Zealand as a hotspot for people, international people to come and race and train. Um, I remember we had a triangle between New Caledonia, New Zealand and Australia where everybody came to train. And that was because, you know, obviously the European winter wasn't the place to be. New Zealand's a great destination and the best people in the world were in New Zealand. So, if I had got to the same level, um, I think I would have. It just would have taken longer. Um, and I would have found, you know, possibly other New Zealand uh, training partners. But I suppose we've got to look back. As, you know, Bruce and Barbara were the pioneers of international windsurfers or especially um, getting results on the world stage. And I was fortunate to come through that era and have the standard that was set and we could achieve that standard nationally before we even went internationally. If we didn't have that level and we went internationally, um, we'd be just sort of floundering. Where do we stand? How do we, where do we find our feet? And we would have found a way for sure. But Bruce and Barb's, you know, a superb period and, and beautiful memories during that, that, that era. You talked about how Bruce beat you by three seconds in that deciding race for 92 Olympics. How close was the battle between the pair of you to get that New Zealand spot for the Atlanta Games? 
Um, what it got to is, you know, I'd, I'd carried, a, I suppose, a, a mental or a psychological advantage into the trials in 96. But, you know, you still got to do the work and you still got to, you know, do the yacht race and manage that during the event. It got to about race six or seven where I finally broke Bruce and um, we both came through the finish line, you know, absolutely just destroyed physically. Um, I think I ended up throwing up. I'd sailed the last downwind with a little piece of weed on and it was that race that actually broke the sort of the 1-2-1-2 one, two, one, two sort of dominance during the regatta. So I went 1-1 went one, one up and it was that it was a very mental um, breaking and from there I managed to just go on and, and dominate the rest of the trials. Um, and you see that quite often in sports and especially tough battles. There is a there's a point that the guy will create that one dominant performance and the other person will actually break or concede. Um, of, of course, they don't throw the towel in completely, but it becomes a point where the writing's on the wall. And you know, probably there was, you know, a number of regattas before that um, where, you know, just being just a little bit ahead of Bruce. Um, it was a titanic battle and really was fantastic. Well, it's a shame that the shame that the pair of you couldn't go to Atlanta, but obviously only one for each country. So, having won that, and given your success on the international stage and the, the the years just leading into those games, what were your expectations heading to Atlanta? Well, um, I wanted to win, and I wasn't afraid to tell that. You know, I'd been world champion. Um, I'd been, you know, in the top echelon of the world for a while, but as I look back now, I made a fundamental error in how we trained and how we focused. And um, it's a very, it's a, you know, if I look back now, it's the training relationship broke down. Bruce had got to a point that he became the coach for that period. And I didn't spend as much time on the water with Bruce leading up to the 96 games. So when when you look back, you really realize that the strength of your training partners really are paramount going into the games and I trained with Shane Bright Barbara uh, Barbara Kendall's husband um, Bruce was on the water you know not as much as he was so it's only now that I reflect and I look at it and it's like yeah we, that was a missed opportunity because in the meantime there was other guys that we'd set the standard and you know three other guys you know got to a point that they were as good um, as what I was um, so a, a little bit of a shame, and but you know it's your losses that make you stronger, and um, you know fourth place at the Olympic Games is is a brutal result, as they call it the leather medal. Um, you bounce back pretty hard after that, and and I think if you look in uh, through the scorecards of all the people that finished fourth at the Olympic Games in whatever year it was, most of them are world champion the next year. It's quite a funny statistic to look at. Well, and exactly what turned out. You were world champion '97 and '98, and you'd probably almost argue that those that period was your most successful um, of your career. So, is that fundamentally what happened from Atlanta? Is that a byproduct of that, or is that a, a mindset of you know at this stage of your career where you were physically, athletically at your at your peak? 
Yeah, I think what it is, you know, you look at the, the accumulation of your experience and, and they talk about an athlete's peak being between 26 and 28. And it can be a little younger these days because of the, the, the amount of coaching that goes in. You can really bypass that experience instead of self-learning it. You can have a coach that adds to it. But, yes, it was a dominant period. And, and you know, I challenged myself, you know, constantly on the water, off the water. I um, had great people supporting me. Um, David Slyfield was a big part of my personal training program. Um, Grant Beck was involved right the way through there. Um, John Paul Tobin was my training partner. He was the next Kiwi to come on the scene. So we were just replicating exactly what Bruce and I had done, and, and JP came on, and, and he was you know, a very, very strong um, mindset, um, very, very talented windsurfer and, and physically very strong as well. So he pushed me as well. Um, yeah, it was fun times, and we just continued to roll out the same model as was that Kiwis working, training, living and traveling and sharing the same goal, um, pushing each other to those heights. And and JP had some great results um, as well during that period with a fifth in the world championships, his world championships. So that's phenomenal too. We're just rolling out the same model. So you, you head to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney this time. How much pressure did you put on yourself to perform, I guess, given what happened in Atlanta and, and also your success in that sort of 97, 98, 99 period? Well, yeah, I, I sort of still struggle a little bit because the guy that won the gold medal had never beat me in an international competition. Um, the guy, Carlos Espinola, who finished second, was also second in Atlanta. Um, I was there to win. And if I... When I look back, the, the Olympic Games was my worst result of that year. So I was either one or two in every championship leading up to the Games. Um, we had Lars Kleppich from Australia. He'd been the most dominant uh, person on Sydney Harbour in the, the years leading up to the Games. Um, and we managed to knock him off his perch in the Oceanic Championships a month before the Olympic Games. And uh, he he finished fourth. So that was probably the... The biggest mental part was to break Lars Kleppich leading into the Olympic Games, especially because he'd been so dominant on his home waters. Um, we took Sydney as our as our own. We'd, you know, I'd leave Auckland on the seven o'clock flight. I'm there by nine o'clock on the morning. In the morning, I'm on the water by eleven um, the same day. So we were pushing in the hours, and you could commute between Sydney and Auckland so easily. So yeah, there was a lot of pressure, and we did a lot of work. Uh, we had a magnificent playbook um, of Sydney Harbour, and it wasn't just classic sea breezes all the time. You had the westerlies that blew out, blew through, um, that mixed it up because we were a September Olympic Games. Uh, a mix of the sea breezes that we had, and we had four different course areas to understand as well. So um, we threw a lot at it. Um, the reality was that as I just came out of the blocks week, I, I started with the the Olympics with an OCS and a 12th on the first day. And I just really struggled to find my place. And there was a little bit of pressure. And I think I did a few things differently as well. I was a little bit too protective of myself. I missed the opening ceremony. I missed the, the, the energy that the Olympics was and focused too much on the racing itself instead of actually sort of actually arms wide open and, and enjoy the experience and feel the energy of the Olympic Games. And I think that's, when I look back, that was what the, the Austrian guy did. He was there to have a good time, um, 
not a crazy time, you know, do the racing, enjoy it for what it was and grab the energy that's there. And, and that's something very special about the Olympic Games and it's it's unique like no other competition that you have you rock up and there's 10,000 athletes that are prepared to to go battle, to do battle over the next, you know, two weeks, the best of the best. And we're rubbing shoulders with those guys. So those opening ceremonies are pretty powerful and especially the lighting of the Olympic flame. So it, you, you get it right. The Olympics are pretty dear to my heart and understanding um, the components of it. Um, and it's not just the performance, it's the energy and rising to the occasion and putting down a, prefer, a, a personal best. And not many people do. And that's the tough thing about the Olympic Games. There's so much more going on and that personal uh, expectation, the public expectation, the pressure, the media, the press, the security. These are all components that we're not actually used to. And uh, you've got to find tools and workarounds to to combat that when you go into um, the Olympic Games. And I suppose it was, you know, the Olympics in Atlanta, we were on a satellite village. So it was just another yacht race. But there was something pretty special about Sydney and we're on the, you know, I suppose the world's, you know, most beautiful amphitheatre for a sailing regatta and, yeah, it was pretty special. So, so given all that, and you did win or claim bronze in Sydney, um, why then was that basically the end of your windsurfing uh, Olympic career? Um, because it seems to me as though that's one of your, I wouldn't say regrets, um, but, you know, you look back on your career, it's the one thing that's potentially missing from your CV. Um, you know, why not keep windsurfing? Well, I think the, the, the funny thing is there's, everybody talks about the, the journey. They, they, it's very cliche. It's the journey, not the destination. And I think the journey between 96 and 2000 was so special and so unique. And Sydney was such a great place to train. Um, the people I was sailing with, the the people I shared that journey with, and some moved on, but I didn't see the same journey leading to Athens. And although I went uh, to Europe in 2001 and, you know, I took a break after the Olympic Games, started kite surfing, um, got involved with uh, Oracle's uh, weather team during the America's Cup for 2003, I jumped back on the board in 2001, but just there was something missing. There was no love there. There was no passion. There was no drive. And when that's missing, you've really got to take a, a pretty serious look at yourself and why am I actually doing it for? And yes, the gold medal is the goal and, and the icing on the cake and it's, you know, it'll always be missing. But while there's no love, there's, there's no way you're going to make that level. And of course I had the ability to, you know, to get there, but without the love. And so I just looked at at a new challenge and um the america's cup was new it was interesting uh the keelboat sailing was interesting uh, match racing was really interesting um and the tornado catamaran um really took my fancy and and they'd supercharged that for the 2004 olympics with a twin trapeze and a jenica and and that became my new mission well, you, you did a campaign for 2004, and then even in the 2008 campaign, you teamed up with Bruce Kendall. Um, you know, what was that experience like? I suppose um, I'm going to be brutally honest here. It was the worst sailing I've done in my life. Um, Bruce and I were two alike. We 
could not sail the boat together as well as um, we should have. Two talented individuals working together. You'd think that you'd have, you know, this amazing combination. But Bruce and I were so similar, but yet so different in some aspects. And and it pains me a little bit because Bruce and I are good mates and have been for years and shared so much together. But we could just never really make it click. And we had moments of brilliance. Um, but the reality was after the, the Worlds in 2006, we just didn't have... Um, the funding to go forward and the tornado is an expensive class and we'd gone into uh, the campaign together where I teamed up with my my old Argentinian friend and uh, we finished sixth in the tornado worlds. Um, he happened to be the bronze medalist as a crew in the class. So Carlos and I did the worlds in 2005 because his skipper Santiago Lang, gold medalist in the NACRA class, um, couldn't compete in that world championship. So that that allowed us to get our campaign going. Unfortunately, it didn't roll as, as well as we'd hoped. And um, that's life. You know, that, that's that's the learning. That's the growing. You know, I learned a huge amount about double-handed sailing, um, about teams and, and professional and personal relationships and how teams work and how they need to work together. Um, but I, I'm going to step back a little bit because, you know, when I jumped into the tornado, I was going to sail with Hamish Pepper, but um, unfortunately, that didn't work out, and I teamed up with Mark Kennedy, who was one of New Zealand's really rising talents in the um, in the double-handed skiff class, and was a P-class national national champion. And Mark and I ran at this Olympic campaign before 2004 at, at great rate of knots and in, in, in Aaron McIntosh style. And from never sailing the tornado to a, within less than a year's time. We had finished fourth at um, the Miami OCR regatta, a World Cup regatta, and won our first international race. So we had a huge amount of potential. Um, but unfortunately, Mark got glandular fever and, and a little bit of, had a couple of relapses of that. So Mark and I never really achieved our, our potential. And anyway, after you know going forward, um, teaming up with Bruce, and unfortunately that didn't work, but we had the World Championships in New Zealand in 2008, and Mark and I teamed up for those worlds, and we qualified New Zealand for the Olympic Games to go to Beijing in the tornado, um, something that we didn't do in 2004. And unfortunately, um, we weren't of the level that Yachting New Zealand required, um, and they're very strict um, Olympic criteria, and uh, they didn't send us to the Olympic Games, although our equipment went there. And yeah, I'm a little bitter. For sure I'm a little bitter, because... We had campaign experience. We had Olympic medals behind myself. Uh, we'd come a long way in a very short period of time. And our last races in that class, we were top three in the world, um, just at the, the last World Cup. And they were in windy conditions. Unfortunately, the selection for Beijing was a very subjective selection. And we weren't performing to a level that Yachty New Zealand believed we could win a medal. And light winds. Um, as uh, Murphy's Law, um, it was the windiest Olympics since 1988, and um, yeah, I think we could have been a nice dark out, a dark horse on the outside there, um, which would have been nice. But you know, sailor V, you know, you got to move on, and um, that was the end of my sailing career in New Zealand. Yeah, um, you moved on and, and moving on and, into coaching fairly swiftly, I think. Um, 
was it a natural pathway for you to follow to, to sort of pick up the clipboard and and follow some of that, or, or you know teach some of those athletes some of those methods that you've been using for so long um it was unique basically i had to you know i had to make a crust you know i got to a point that i'd gone um 30 or 40 thousand dollars backwards in the um trying to get to the olympic games i'd thrown my everything at it and um didn't make it so i had to you know repack the repay the the loans that i'd had um and coaching was a natural progression for me it paid well and i had a huge amount of experience but the funny thing was I stepped into the coaching arena and I hadn't actually windsurfed or had anything to do with windsurfing for seven years. And if I look at that period, that seven-year period, I learned a huge amount about what I did as a sailor, as a windsurfer, but I also added a lot to my skill set, being involved in the America's Cup and coaching the star class and sailing the Itchel and sailing the Tornado and um, the Extreme 40. I'd done a huge amount of sailing um, during that period. It just wasn't Olympic level. And I just transferred all those skills across, plus what I did as a windsurfer. And, and the Dutch Sailing Federation picked me up and initially a part-time contract, and they wanted more, and I wanted less. And eventually they got what they wanted, and they got me as a full-time coach to run their program. And, um, yeah, we haven't looked back. What was the state of windsurfing in that country when you took over? Um, well, they've they've got quite a a long legacy of 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 windsurfing. So the first Olympic Games in in 1984, where windsurfing was there, Stefan Vandenberg won the gold medal, and Stefan's still an active windsurfer now and still active in the industry. Um, that had various talents um, that had you know finished in the top ten. Um, Casper Bowman, um, who I actually helped a little bit before the Beijing Olympics, was world champion in 2006. But he was a big guy and performed exceptionally well in strong winds, but really was you know, in the 40s and 50s in the, in the light winds. So he was a hero to zero sort of sailor. Um, so that had moments of brilliance. But unfortunately, their coach beat all the fun out of their training and their, and their racing program. And they got to a stage that they were on a bit of a downward spiral. And I managed to grab them at the right time and inject a bit of enthusiasm and fun and professionalism into the game and, and turn these guys into Olympic windsurfers, not Olympic athletes. And I suppose that's the defining term I use. You're an Olympic sailor. You're not an Olympic athlete. And it's taking your particular sport and, and making that, a, that your Olympic thing not just doing what everybody else thinks, that I have to be, an, I'm an Olympic athlete. Yes, you are in, in the global term, but the reality is, is you've got to focus on your sport and enjoy what attracted you to the sport. And if you take that away, and this is what the, uh, the, the, the last Dutch windsurfing coach did, he extracted all the fun out of it, trying to make these guys into Olympic athletes. And um, they nearly lost those guys. They nearly lost the, the era that has been um, purely because uh, it was no fun no more. And the reason you get into a sport is because of the enjoyment of the sport itself. And when that's gone, when the passion and the love's gone, as I've spoken previously about it, you've got to look at something else. And sometimes that love and that passion's taken from you. 
It's interesting you use the word fun because people have said about your methods, uh, and I quote, you look like you're having too much fun. When are you going to get serious? Um, how do you balance that? What, what is it that you sort of do to make sure that people are having enjoying what they're doing but also performing at the highest level? Well, I'm not going to give everything away on this podcast. Sorry, Michael, but um, we uh, I'm an entertainment manager, but I'm um, I'm a taskmaster as well. So the work needs to be done to a level that I I believe is acceptable, and these guys need to have some serious skin in the game. The goals we share are goals that we share across the group or the collective. Um, the methods to do it, I try and keep. I take something that they enjoy and we add it to our repertoire of training so whether it be mountain biking or whether it be stand-up paddle boarding or whether it's surfing yeah we go surfing we can call that training but we can also call it um actually recovery as well so i let the guys surf but i never never let the guys surf on a day on they can only sorry on a day off they can only surf on a day on so it adds more volume to your training so the guys live a very active lifestyle doing stuff that they enjoy. Um, we decided that mountain biking was a better fit for us than road biking. Um, and as we learned, mountain biking is a lot more 3D than road riding is a very 2D. And we're sailors and we can't control the variables, but we need to understand the variables and deal with them. And mountain biking does that. Road riding is, you know, yeah, very similar, but there's not as much detail going on in the in the in your close proximity. So mountain biking became our our choice of of our cardio. Um, I tried to put the guys on rowing machines in gym in the gym. That was a hard ask. So I just removed that and found something else that fitted. Um, yeah, and people have said, "When do you stop having fun?" The reason we have fun is we love the sport and we try and make our training a little bit of an adventure. You've got to do long hours in a certain portion of the season. Well, why don't you go somewhere? You know, we'd done downwinders to the barrier, spent a week training at the barrier and sailed home again. That's what we did for fun. But it was also pretty good training. We also did mount, epic mountain bike you know, tours that were 14-day training blocks. Where you've, um, you've ridden them in some of the most beautiful places in the world. and you start looking at the stats after the week and you go, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good training block, wasn't it? So the fun, the training was fun. The hours were easy because it was fun. Um, and there's still the same focus and dedication right the way through. Um, you know, you can't do this sport without it. But I, made, I became the entertainment manager and made the fit to my athletes. That's interesting. Uh, you been, what, about 10, 12 years um, with the Dutch Sailing Federation, who you continue to work for. But throughout that time, um, you've based yourself in New Zealand. So how did that work, and was dis distance ever a barrier? Well, eight trips to Europe a year kind of gets a little bit long in the tooth and, and um, is obviously pretty hard on, on family life as well. Um, I had a job to do, and that required time away. Um, so, you know, for my kids, that was a reality. Um, the guys would come and spend, you know, two to three months at a time in New Zealand. So what, what better place to come and train? So I also brought 
um, the team back to New Zealand. And during, you know, um, the 2008 to 2012 period, um, John Paul Tobin was a big part of our training program and was one of our number one training partners. And, and it was the efforts of John Paul that got us to, that helped get us to the success in London. And again, you're just pulling in a, a group of like-minded people that enjoy the same things. And, um, and at that stage, Tom Ashley was still sailing. So there was a good level of um, sailors in New Zealand. So it made sense to spend as much time here as possible, um, especially leading up to 2012 when the New Zealanders were still on the map. In, in more recent years, you've had the world's top two windsurfers in um, Dorian Van Rysselberger and Karen Badlow, and the pair actually finished 1-2 at both the 2018 and 2019 World Championships, I think. So how did you achieve that, and, and what made those two so special? Well, we brought Kieran into our program in uh, 2013, and, and he was just a young talent at that stage, a raw talent. And um, off the back of Dorian's success in 2012, we weren't really ready to sort of change the program up. So Kieran had to be the right fit to bring a, bring him into our training program. And uh, so we put him through a, a, a testing phase, as, as you could call it, and um, pushed him and tried to learn and understand what he was. And he was pretty pretty quiet, pretty reserved, got in, did what he was told and did the work. And Kieran became our, you know, our number one training partner for the Rio Olympics. And in the meantime, we just teach him everything we know, um, give, us, give him as much as we can and bring him in and as a tight training partner. And so the, the training relationship, the friendship grows upon that because you do spend so much time together. But if you've got the right people together, that friendship grows and the relationship, the team environment works. So you've got to be quite selective on who you put together. Um, and Kieran and Dorian fitted quite well, even though there's you know an age gap. Um, they surf, they ride, they train. Um, yeah, it worked. It was very easy in that respect. And Kieran quite often was faster than Dorian. So Kieran lifted us to a, a higher level at times as well. And, and I, even though Dorian had qualified for Rio, you could sense the frustration in, in the training. But as soon as we stepped back onto the, you know, the competitive stage, we'd actually stepped out from the rest of the world. And, and that's the whole idea, try and step above the rest of the world and, and create our own battle. Um, so, Yes, recently we've had three world championships and uh, Kieran and Dorian have taken the podium, the top two spots for the last three years. So right now, a little disappointing. We don't have an Olympic Games, um, in, well, which would essentially be six weeks' time um, to uh, finish the year off and, and focus on this foiling thing that we talked about earlier in the project. Gratifying as a coach, you know, to have the top world's top two. Yeah. Of course it is, yeah, and, and the results are phenomenal. And, you know, but we created a, an Olympic trial system and uh, those all of those results were a part of our Olympic trials. Um, that was a criteria that we created and a system we created. Um, and, you know, we achieved the goals that we set, um, but we did the work in, in doing so. 
I must admit last year was quite challenging. We did have quite a few injuries and that, but our greater team really um, and the support of our greater network managed to sort of um, make the right decisions at the right time and, and still get the performance that we needed to when we when it was required. Um, so, yes, the performance, phenomenal, very gratifying, but it's actually not that that's the most important. It's the people that Dorian and Kieran have grown into. They're amazing human beings. Um, they're humble, they're successful, they're great teachers, they're great role models, they're respect, respected competitors, and that's what I'm most proud about, as they are heroes of the sport, and they're loved heroes of the sport, and I suppose that's the, the nature of how we compete. Um, yeah, of course, not everybody likes us, you know, no one likes someone that goes out and beats them up every time and time and time again, but... Um, when you hear the applause uh, during the World Championship, that says a lot, and that's respect. And that's what these guys have gained, and I'm most proud of that, um, more so than the results. Well, Dorian's uh, retired recently after missing their Olympic spot in the Dutch team to Kirin for the Tokyo Olympics. So you'd worked with him for so long. What was that moment like for you? considering you had been working so closely together? Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty emotional. And, and I think uh, it took us all a little while to actually reflect on what we'd just put ourselves through. And the three of us of what we'd put ourselves through um, emotionally, um, competing at that level um, with a huge amount of respect for each other. It was a winner takes all uh, for the Olympic trials. And, there was two points, the difference in the end after three years or three world championships of racing, which is no margin at all. Um, I suppose the love, the respect and the friendship between us all was probably the most beautiful part about it. The, again, the performance, phenomenal, but uh, Dorian humble in defeat. And people thought that Dorian would retire after Rio. And and Kieran would be given the ticket, would step up. And, and Dorian said, no, um, if he's good enough to go to the Olympic Games, he can be. And so the biggest gift that Dorian gave was the support and the push of Kieran to that level. And in the meantime, Kieran's pushed Dorian. But Dorian's also pushed Kieran to a level that he needed to um, be to go to the Olympic Games. He only had to beat the Olympic champion to qualify for his first Olympics. Um, it's a familiar story, though, isn't it? <laughs> Not wrong. Well, Dorian had been part of um, your team pushing for windfoiling to be accepted in the Olympic program, I think, even writing an open letter to World Sailing, urging them to make the change. Um, what was the general feeling that you were getting among the RSX fleet about what class they wanted to see at the Olympics? I think the reality was, is the class didn't know what they wanted. Um, they were afraid of change. And we created this class, promoted it and pushed it um, with the, the, the tagline of to inspire the next generation. And Dorian was obviously a pivotal part of that and believed in the whole process. And, and it's a very selfless, sort of attitude is we want the sport to succeed we want the pathway when you see five kids in New in in holland 
thinking about following in Dorian's steps to the Olympic Games. That's not acceptable. You know, all the fame and all the profile that you bring a sport and you can't build it into something, you know, big um, shows that the sport had a problem. And right now we're seeing windfoiling um, reinvigorate New Zealand. Um, we're seeing, you know, I know next weekend there's a competition in Holland. They expect over 40 competitors. Um, the new equipment's rolling out. Um, you're seeing young kids, old kids. It's a meeting of the generations. Um, it's the meeting of the classes as well. So we've encapsulated a new audience and targeted the youth and the junior programs, which um, we're rolling out in New Zealand as we speak. So it's pretty special. It's very special. And, it, and it's a gift to the sport. And the open letter to World Sailing or the Council of World Sailing was pretty damning of the class and where the sport was at. But it got the councillors to actually stand up and listen to what Dorian had to say. And they weren't entirely Dorian's words, um, but that was the sentiment and that was the feeling. We needed to do something. And it's it's just another successful chapter that Dorian and, and myself and Starboard and Antonio Cosolino have been involved in and getting this foiling to that point. Um, yeah, we've made a change and a change for the good. So was that letter, because you've talked about that resistance to change, was that letter almost the turning point in which, you know, it became more widely accepted? Well, what that got is that letter actually got us to a point that we could have an uh, equipment selection trial. So we put a submission in in 2018, and unfortunately that submission got brushed, and that was a submission from the Dutch Sailing Federation, and it was supported. Unfortunately, that got brushed underneath the, um, the rug um, when the, the mixed keelboat program came on and there was too much change. And it was an easy option for World Sailing to stick with um, the RSX class. Too much change, upset the apple cart a little bit too much. Um, you know, the political game that plays and, and the mixed keelboat got in and the RSX was to stay. And what that was going to happen at the May meeting in 2019 was that they were going to vote for um, no change. And our back was against the wall, and we tried to put a submission in, and that wasn't accepted. So we created what we call the Dorian Letter. And the Dorian Letter got the council's attention. And the beautiful thing was, is listening to that conference live, is that the people or the councillors were using our text and our quotes to inspire the new future and that vote, I think it was 24-19 or something, in favour of going to an Olympic trial or a, a, an equipment selection trial, which was in October last year um, in Lake Garda. So the day after the Olympic, uh, sorry, the, the World Championships finished, we rolled into the equipment selection trials and we presented um, three windfoiling classes to uh, a World Sailing uh, Technical Committee. And from there... Um, it was a unanimous decision that windfoiling was the only way forward. Um, there was uh, two other um, boards at the trial. Uh, they were displacement windsurfers, and they didn't get a look in. Um, it was a case of what project that they were going to support. Um, there was two that they supported, and that was the One Design iFoil and Windfoil One, which was actually a project Antonio and I put together um, with Starboard. 
um, which was a, a whiteboard concept with um, a development, a, a, say, a, a registered series production sales and foils because we believed that the equipment needed a little bit more development. The reality was that World, uh, the, the equipment committee had to present to World Sailing in three weeks' time and a one design uh, version was the most palatable and that makes sense. And it was a unanimous decision in um, the World Sailing Conference to change to the foiling class. So um, another project well done, well presented. Uh, we brought the right people around um, and we sold the story. So again, it's all history. We still have another year of RSX as we, as we head towards Tokyo 2021. But um, in the meantime, the, the Olympic foiling class is the equipment's rolling out around the world and the enthusiasm's very, very special to see. Well, you know, New Zealand, you talked about that sort of reinvigoration of windfoiling, of windsurfing in this country, um, because it had been largely dormant, really, in New Zealand for, you know, the best part of a decade, particularly at, at Olympic level. What was that period like for you, considering New Zealand had been at the forefront of the sport for so long? Pretty painful, very painful. Um, pretty disappointed, pretty disillusioned. Um, you know, Thomas Ashley won the gold medal in in 2008, and there was the building blocks to establish the class further. Um, John Paul Tobin uh, worked incredibly hard and finished seventh at the Olympic Games in uh, in in London. Um, and after that, there was nothing. There was no youth development. Uh, there was no coaching support. Um, there was no pathway. And so during that period, we missed New Zealand on the world stage. Um, it made it easier for us. Thank you very much. But um, it requires um, a pathway to create these Olympic athletes. You don't just get a kid just come out of the woodwork and, and rise to the top without um, a system or without a fleet, a national fleet. You've got to do your growing in New Zealand, and we created that. New Zealand always had that, and unfortunately with the RSX class, um, it failed. So right now, um, yeah, we had our national championships just recently um, at Manly, um, just before lockdown, um, 50 competitors. Um, we have a junior squad. We have a development squad now. We have coaching. We're involved in the Aon clinics with Yachting New Zealand. Um, we've got a class association uh, happening in New Zealand. I just happen to be the president of it. Um, we have a, a great driving force here in New Zealand to put New Zealand back on the world windsurfing map. Um, and I still work for the Dutch sailing team. Um, but that's my day job. And this windfoil New Zealand is my passion at the moment to get New Zealand back on the map. Um, yeah, maybe there's a conflict of uh, interest there, but the reality is, as my guys come down to New Zealand and train, um, we've got two great nations, um, and hopefully our next training partner is someone from New Zealand. But in the meantime, it puts New Zealand back on the map, and we've got great people involved in our in our system. And again, we're focusing on the youth and junior development as a class, and um, we want to, you know, pardon the cliche, make windsurfing great again. Do you think that advent of windfoiling has given it that shot in the armour and to 
guess giving it that chance, because the whole world has to reset and almost start again in a new class. Um, so it gives New Zealand that chance to get back to the front of the fleet. It certainly does. You know, we New Zealand, we've always been six months ahead of the curve um, because we started foiling in New Zealand early. Uh, we started racing and running regattas uh, early in New Zealand. Uh, we were attracting new people early as well as backing the whole Olympic thing as well. So we had everything to win um, going foiling. Um, but it just puts New Zealand back on the map as windsurfers. And, and it's not just the, the youth and, and uh, the, the Olympic guys. We're getting the, all the old boys back as well, including myself. So, you know, I hadn't windsurfed for 16 years. Now I'm back on the water and I'm competing and helping to set the standard here in New Zealand. Um, so I'm back on the water. I'm loving it. And the energy that we've got and the, the culture that we're creating here in New Zealand is absolutely phenomenal. We've got a small girls group that's going, I think five or six people. Joe Alley is involved in that. Polly Powery is, in, uh, is, uh, is on the water as well. Um, Brianna Orams is uh, a new girl to the program. Um, it's very, very cool to see. And, um, you know, I, I love a project. Uh, this is more than just a project. It's a passion. Um, and, yeah, let's let's see how it goes. The... The goals are high and um, the path is long, but um, as long as the guys are having fun and, and everybody's growing as well, um, we'll see what the future can bring. So you've still got your day job until, I'm guessing, for the end of the, with the Dutch Federation until the end of the Olympics. What's the kind of plans for Aaron McIntosh beyond that? Well, um, oh, I'm not going to say too much, but um, I need to evolve uh, a little bit. Um, I'm not a windsurf coach anymore. I'm, I, I do a lot more than just coaching windsurfing. Um, at the moment, I'm stuck here in New Zealand, which is fantastic, but I've never been busier and I'm setting up other programs uh, going forward in, in the Netherlands. So um, that's really exciting for me. And we've got you know three exciting projects that were just launched recently um, as, a relook, as well as a relook in our foiling program uh, for the wind foiling in the Netherlands. So... Um, it's busy. Um, I have I work with great people in the Netherlands, and that's why I'm still there. I have a great team around me, um, uh, on and off the water, um, and that's the the federation. So at the moment, there's no change until after the Olympics next year, and we'll reassess um, where things go there. Well, you've already had a, a number of evolutions in your career: athlete, advocate, coach, uh, what have you. So it'll be interesting to see what the next ones are. Um, been a great chat with you, Aaron. Um, but before I let you go, like all guests on the show, I need to um, ask you your worst wipeout ever. I'm probably putting you on the spot a little bit here, but um, can you tell the story of your worst wipeout ever? Um, it was wasn't racing. I, I don't suppose it was racing. I suppose it's the most scariest experience I had um, when I was windsurfing. Um, yeah, we pushed hard and we had some crashes, but not nothing that were too bad. But I, I, there was a day that I really thought I was going to drown uh, in the surf off Taranaki um, uh, for you know cross training and fun, as windsurfers do. You go wave sailing, and Taranaki was the sort of the wild west, and um, it was a huge day. And I wasn't that experienced in the waves, you know, I'm comfortable, but I got cleaned up by something pretty big, and um, 
The golden rule is never let go of the boom. It's also a foiling rule. Um, my arm was twisted inside out and back to front and body contorted and I was getting rinsed and cleaned and thrown through the washing machine. I let go of my gear eventually and, um, yeah, had a long swim back to the beach. So, yeah, wipeout crash and, um, and, and near-death experience in the surf. Um, it certainly scares you, but it also gives you a lot of respect for the ocean and the power of the ocean as well. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, nearly drowning off the Taranaki coast, uh, windsurfing, of course. Well, I don't think you're the first or probably won't be the last to sort of get in the washing machine out, uh, out in the Taranaki Ocean, that's for sure. Um, they, they say it's very cleansing. <laughs> something like that yeah well thank you so much again it's been uh, a really fascinating um hour or so to to chat to you uh and it sounds as though there's going to be more in this uh more stories to tell in the evolution of aaron mcintosh so um i'm sure that uh you know down the track we'd love to have you back on the podcast so um thanks for your time today and, and i know you're off to hit the uh, mountain bike trails in rotorua so enjoy yourself there yeah, no, thanks very much, Michael. It's, uh, it's been it's great, great little chat and tell a few stories. And, uh, yeah, uh, watch the space. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Let us know what you think by emailing michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz or you can also write in telling us your worst wipeout ever. In the meantime, catch you next Friday.